Father in heaven, thank you, God, for um, all the people that have given their lives, their time, their service uh, for this country. Lord, it was founded on an idea uh, that is much greater uh, than anything we could possibly conceive. It's founded on the idea of liberty. And Father, if there's anything that preaches liberty, it's the liberty that we have in Christ our Lord. Um, Just the fact that we are able to pass out Bibles uh, in a public capacity like this is incredible compared to the majority of places on this planet. Uh, Just asking, Father, for your mercy as we look at the Word today, that you would bless it to our hearts and our minds. It's in Christ's name, amen. So if you would, take your Bibles and turn with me open to Psalm 48. And what we're going to be looking at today is we are finishing our study on dispensations. Just to recap real quick, what is a dispensation? A dispensation is a stewardship. Some people would classify it as a stewardship of time. But what it actually is, is a responsibility that God, the creator of all things, has placed into the hands of the people that make up his creation. It is a responsibility to uphold. It leaves us to be fully culpable for what he asks of us. And I think that's important. Because with the exception of the law given to Israel, all of the other dispensations are public in nature. They are a requirement for all of mankind, the created people of the earth, to uphold. So, uh, let me give you a for instance. With innocence, all there is is Adam and Eve. They're commanded not to eat of the tree of the garden, and they do that. Because they do that, God has to judge that sin. So the requirement is don't eat. The failure is that they ate. They sinned against God. He now has to judge that sin, but he spared their lives and instead killed animals in their place and skinned them in order to cover them with their skins. That's grace. They deserve to die, and they did not. So that makes up the idea of a dispensation. If you have your chart today, we're going to be going through that definitely. But I want us to look at some different things about this idea of the kingdom. Uh, Whenever we were going through the foundational framework series, I made a comment and I got a little bit of flack for it and I thought it was interesting. So I definitely want to make that again without apology. Heaven is not your goal. It's not. And I don't mean to sound blasphemous when I compare it to a Greyhound station. Not that it's dingy and dirty. I don't know what Greyhound station you've been in, okay? But if that's what you relate it to, I would hope that you would bypass that for a moment and and get the overall gist of what I'm trying to say. The idea is, is that heaven is a temporary place for us. Because we are waiting for the Lord Jesus to return to the earth. And in triumph take a hold of his rightful possession and establish his kingdom. The kingdom is the goal, not heaven. The next thing to happen on the prophetic time clock is the rapture of the church. No one knows when it's going to happen. If you want to jot this down in your notes, I believe there's a lot of people say, well, there's there's nothing else left to happen necessarily until this takes place. I think the Bible gives us just a little inkling of some things to look at. If you want to write it down and check it out for yourself, just read 2 Thessalonians 2. And when you read 2 Thessalonians 2, you will find that there are two requirements that are to happen before the rapture takes place. And that is, a great falling away will happen in the church, an apostasy. We will actually come to a point towards the end of this dispensation before we are raptured off the earth, where we are going to see the church in droves turn away from the gospel. Now, for those of you that are licking your finger and holding it to the wind of evangelicalism, you might say, well, good grief, we're already there. There's parts of it, but I have a feeling it's going to get much, much worse. Much, much worse. I think there's going to be a complete abandoning of God's word. And that's why when I stress to you guys saying, at the end of every dispensation, there's a failure. I am convinced that we don't have to be that way. I think it parallels well with the idea of, is regardless of how many Jews refuse to believe in Jesus Christ as their Messiah, there is always a remnant. And so if I can use that idea and transfer it to the church, there may be many churches that fall away from the Lord and become consumed with 
let's just try to reach as many people as we possibly can. Let's water down sin and not really talk about that or hell or the lake of fire or anything like that. Regardless of those strides that people take for popularity of what they think they can entertain people with. I think that this church needs to stand as a remnant, if I could use that word, that is the exception to the norm of which that way goes. I think we have the awesome potential, if we would understand and grasp the reason why the church is here, to have an excellent showing when we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not like he hasn't provided us with everything that we need. You know, we're not all searching for a little bit more to add to the equation. No, he's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Our job is just to learn how to walk in the Spirit, confess our sin when we commit it, and seek to be about his business and not our own. Now, that requires selflessness, and that's a hard thing. Let's not lie. I'm my biggest fan. I promise you. My ego is as big as this room. If I wouldn't have confessed sin in 1 John 1, 9, nobody would be able to sit in here because it's so large. Okay? So God has a lot of work to do on me, I promise you. But that's the idea, is saying no to the self-life and yes to the Christ life. The second thing that will happen is that we will actually see who the man of lawlessness is. The church will get a glimpse of who that is before we are raptured. Now, I don't know what that looks like or how it's going to happen, but 2 Thessalonians tells me that there are two things that are going to happen before the Lord returns and makes that possible, okay? Now, notice I don't call him the Antichrist. Why is that? If you read the epistles of John, you find out there are many antichrists. The word antichrist has become popular because we've read a lot of Tim LaHaye. And that's okay. I'm not knocking Tim LaHaye at all, the Left Behind series and all that. But what I'm saying is, is let's use the language that the Bible uses. The man of lawlessness or the man of sin. That's what he's called in 2 Thessalonians 2. We will actually see who this one world ruler will be. Probably in the infancy of his political career. And then we will be raptured. So with that being said, I want to make a recommendation to you, and then we'll get started in looking at what we have to look at. And don't worry, I've already told the people back there that we're going to run a little long today, you're safe. Or are you? Okay. There is a three-volume book series that was written in 1884 called The Theocratic Kingdom. It is by a man named George N.H. Peters. And you know he's serious because he's got... Two initials in his middle name, right? So obviously something serious. What's interesting is you read the foreword to that book and they say, never has a pastor written such a massive work on a subject that is so thorough and so revolutionary in causing a paradigm shift in the church, and yet he died in utter obscurity. His work didn't become popular until after he was dead. In fact, if I remember correctly from reading about him the conditions of which he had to write under were terrible freezing all the time in his office there was no heat whatsoever he's trying to scrape for paper um nobody knew who he was you've probably never heard of him before pastor steve knows who he is i know who he is and if you find his three volume set you may say good grief how am i going to read three volumes i'll I'll give you this Read it alongside your Bible because that's the greatest thing that you have to look forward to is the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ. That's the initiative. That's, that's a, the, the ugh to get out there and read that and purchase something like that. Everybody got, anybody got any theological ugh this morning? There you go. Just want to make sure. All right. Psalm 48. One of the greatest recognitions we can tell about the prophecy of the coming kingdom is the use of the word Zion. Everybody familiar with that? Usually see that touted across CNN, radical Zionists. What in the world does that mean? Does it mean just people who love Israel a whole, 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 whole lot? Well, maybe, maybe. But in the studies that I've found, and if you find something different, please bring it to my attention. Again, I'm not good at anything, but (laughs) bring it to my attention if you see otherwise. When Zion is used, it's overwhelmingly used as the idea of speaking of Jerusalem. And in speaking of Jerusalem with the idea of a messianic flavor that coats the whole thing. It's the idea of David's prophesied son. 
that will sit on the throne and will rule from Jerusalem in a literal, political, and I use this word theocratic way. It is God on the seat to rule. Now, that's a massive promise. If you're looking for where that's at, that's 2 Samuel 7, okay? And you can check that out sometime if you want to. But look at chapter 48 here, and look at just the first three verses. Great is Yahweh. Remember, Yahweh is God's personal name, the self-existent one, the one who needs nothing else to be who he is or exist as he does. He's perfectly self-sufficient and greatly to be praised. And the city of our Elohim, his holy mountain. Now notice, city, holy mountain. Everybody see how those are paired together? Now watch this. Beautiful in elevation. The joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion in the far north. The city of the great king. God, Elohim, in her palaces has made himself known as a stronghold. The king, Jesus is many things. We too often stop short of Savior. Because our lack of Jewishness, we could all stand to see him more as high priest. But we cannot forget that he is the king. He is the bookend of history. He is the exclamation point that God wants to tie up existence with. And he will rule on a throne from Zion, Jerusalem. Say what you want about cosmology, astrology, and all this stuff. And let me go ahead and just ruin the end for you. Jerusalem is the center of everything. Now that's not me, that's God. Jerusalem is a place where he has chosen to set his name. Where he has chosen to make... All these prophecies come true in time. It will be the center battleground of the tribulation period, which is the judgment for the disregard of the gospel during the church age. But it will also be the exact place, that region, that Middle East region, where he will return when he comes through the sky, not just the clouds, he rips through the sky. Which have I told you guys that heaven's another dimension? Think about that for a while and take a couple of Advil, okay? That's pretty amazing to me. And he will actually set down his foot on earth. He will actually deal with everyone at that time that hates him. In fact, it says that the people of the earth will weep when they see him coming. Not weeping because they're happy to see him. I promise you that. That's not the reason why. But they're going to come to a very shaking recognition And that is the time of grace has closed. The time to accept Christ is over. So when we talk about Zion, keep that in mind as you're going through your Old Testament. Look at Psalm 76. Turn over to that. Psalm 76. If you remember in Solomon's time, because he married all these ladies... And because he built all of their altars for all the gods that they wanted to worship, and he fell prey to that at the end of his life, God told him that he would rip the kingdom from his son and divide it in two. The southern half became Judah, the northern half became Israel. So when you read Psalm 76, you'll see this. Look at it, verse 1. Elohim is known in Judah, there's your south. His name is great in Israel, there's your north. His tabernacle... Now pay attention to that word, tabernacle. Because the idea of a tabernacle is God setting up a tent of which he is going to occupy and live in amongst people. It's like if somebody pulled a a mobile home up in your front yard and said, yep, this looks like a good place. Anybody okay with that? What if Jesus did it? Would you be okay with that? He's like, you're Jesus, you're going to do whatever, right? That's how we would go. But notice what it says. His tabernacle is in Salem. Salem is an abbreviated word for Jerusalem, okay? And it means city of peace, or it means foundation of peace. That's the name of Jerusalem. So when you're in the Old Testament and you're checking out Melchizedek, who was the king and also the priest of Salem, 
He was the one offering sacrifices for atonement, but also the ruler who is a type of Christ in the Old Testament. He is a foreshadowing of what Jesus would be. When we talk about that Jesus is a high priest who, when he was resurrected, offered the sacrifice of his blood before God the Father in the temple of heaven for the atonement of the sins of all people that would ever exist... He has a priesthood forever in the order of Melchizedek. He is the rightful king of Jerusalem. That is important for us to see. Now you may say, what in the world did you just say? That's why we recorded online. And you can go back and you can check those out. Just Google Melchizedek. Stay away from YouTube. You'll find all kinds of fun stuff. The tabernacle is in Salem. His dwelling place is also in, what's the word? Zion, here's something that I want you to see. This is a little hermeneutical principle. This is what is known as a synonymous parallelism, okay? And the idea is, is that you're going to make a statement in Scripture that says one thing, and then the very next statement that you make says the exact same thing, only in a different way. Everybody notice that the parallels here are Salem and what? And Zion. Notice that tabernacle and what? dwelling everybody see how that works see that's not hard you guys just learned a million dollar jeopardy question here this is great so notice zion jerusalem zion jerusalem this is the place of touchdown for the lord this is where he will rule from and i think it is an extremely big deal that we take a look at it now with that in mind turn with me to ezekiel 37 ezekiel 37 isaiah jeremiah lamentations Ezekiel. And this is addressing the idea of there being the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, Israel and Judah. And God is saying, I'm going to bring them back together again. I'm going to make them one again. But then he also reveals to Ezekiel some incredible things about what the nature of the kingdom is going to look like. Now, let me say this real quick. You may be reading some of these Old Testament prophecies and you say, well, how in the world can I tell if it's the kingdom that's in view? Or how can I tell if it's the eternal state that is in view? When there is a 1,000 year reign of Jesus Christ, at the end of that, he is going to deal with all sin. And we're going to get to that today and look of how he judges all of this. And then there ushers in a new heaven and a new earth, which becomes the eternal state where there is no sin anymore. Okay? You say, how in the world will I know the difference? Ask yourself the question, is judgment in view here somewhere? Because in the eternal state, there is no sin and there is no need to judge. It makes sense? Okay, so you always ask yourself, is there a sense of judgment that I'm getting here? Look at verse 21, Ezekiel 37, 21. Say to them, now who is them? If you want to write verse 18 there, the sons of the people of Israel and Judah is the idea. The next generations that you're going to deal with with with, with Israel. Say to them, thus says, now watch the language here, Adonai Yahweh, the master, the self-existent one. Notice that this prophecy here, he is actually taking a highly reverent role of being the one who is over all things they're actually using the word master here and using the word adonai behold i will take the sons of israel from among the nations where they have gone and i will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land and i will make them one nation in the land does everybody see land land does everybody see that what does that remind you of The Abrahamic covenant. See, this covenant that God made with Abraham back in Genesis 15, this isn't just something fun to make coloring book pictures out of. This actually tells you what CNN is one day going to have to report on. Won't that be a glorious day? Right? Everybody's going to be pro-Israel at that moment because you won't be able to help it. Knut, raise your hand right here. Brilliant guy. Love him. He let me borrow a great video that I watched last night. It's called I Am Israel. And it's and here's what's really cool about it. It's narrated from the guy that played Gimli in Lord of the Rings. Okay? Oh, see, now all of you are all excited about it now. I got your attention. But what's interesting, it's, it's interviewing different Jewish people talking about their love for the land. How people may have lived in America for years, but they felt drawn to the land for some reason. They had to be there. And so they set up shop. They started businesses. They're trying to help the economy there. 100 years ago, 
there were 60,000 Jews in that area. Israel wasn't even declared a nation again until 1948. Today, there are over 6 million Jews in that area. Tell me that God is not doing something. When have we ever known a nation to be completely dispersed in 170 AD, done with, Jerusalem just completely destroyed, conquered, Israel over, everybody scattered. Why are they scattered? Because of their idolatry and ultimately killing their Messiah. The blood is on their hands for that. And so God judges them by dispersing them all over the earth. But yet he is beginning to bring them back together into the land. Regardless if you care about Israel or not, you can't deny that God is doing something. The land, that's the focal point. All of history rests on real estate. That's almost scary, isn't it? But it's true. Now, not only that, look at verse 22. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. There's your location, just in case we were wondering where it was. And But here's the beautiful part. And one what? One king. One king will be king for all of them. And they will no longer be two nations and no longer be divided into two kingdoms. They will no longer defile themselves with their idols or with their detestable things or with any of their transgressions. But I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned and will cleanse them and they will be my people and I will be their Elohim. My servant David will be king over them. Has David already passed away at this point in the Bible? He has. So is Ezekiel crazy? No. He is speaking about the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant from 2 Samuel 7. This is actually going to come true before your eyes in this future time period. My servant David will be king over them, and they will all have one shepherd, and they will walk in my ordinances and keep my statutes, and observe them. And we say, finally, finally that will happen. Why? Because if you read the 39 books of the Old Testament, you find out that is the constant plea of God's heart for his people. Just trust me. Just uphold what I'm asking you. Just watch what I can do when you obey. I guarantee you that's not any different from a lesson that he's trying to teach us today as the church. Notice it says here, verse 25, they will live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived, and they will live on it. They and their sons and their sons' sons, how long? Forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince. How long? Forever. You read this, and it corresponds perfectly with Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter 2. A kingdom without hands that it's been made. And it will be established, it will crush all others, and it will be here forever. The exact same thing. Verse 26, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It will be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will make them and multiply them. Now stop, multiply them. This tells you that when the kingdom takes place and he establishes it in the land and Jesus is reigning, that physical people have been ushered into this kingdom. They were people who made it through the tribulation period. They're probably going to be predominantly Jewish in their ethnic makeup. And they are going to be physically in the kingdom. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay. The church has already been raptured at this point. Notice what it says. And I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. Forever. Anybody know what the other name for the sanctuary is? Temple. Temple, tabernacle, I'll, I'll, I'll give you like a C plus on tabernacle, that's okay. Temple, the millennial temple. There will actually be a temple in the millennium. If you want to read more about this, Ezekiel 40 through 48 outlines this entire idea. Nine chapters set aside just to talk about a temple. That's how serious it is. Notice it says here, verse 27, my dwelling place also will be with them and I will be their Elohim and they will be my people. And the nations, that's the Gentiles, will know that I am Yahweh who sanctifies Israel, who sets them apart and consecrates them for my purposes. When my sanctuary, my temple, is in their midst forever. Sound pretty amazing? It only gets better. Let's turn to Psalm 110. 
I'm not convinced you're all awake this morning. Some of the amens are loud. Some of them are garble mouth. That's okay. We'll give you a pass. Psalm 110. This psalm is quoted about four or five different times in the New Testament. It's pretty pivotal as far as the New Testament authors consider it. Let's read through it together. The Lord, notice it's Yahweh, says to my Lord, notice that's Adonai. Does everybody see the difference? Yes? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. In other words, God the Father is talking to God the Son. And he says, sit at this place of privilege and prominence during this time. Now, when did he sit down at the right hand of God? Do we know? After he ascended into heaven. And when he sits there, notice that there is a time. He's only going to be sitting there for a time. There must be a transpiring of events in order for all of your enemies to be made the footstool. Now, can you imagine sitting there and all of your enemies you get to prop your heels up on? Anybody want to prop your heels up on your enemies? So you don't want to admit that because then you know you're going to have to 1 John 1.9 your way out of this building. So, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Verse 2, Yahweh will stretch forth your strong scepter. From Zion. From where? Huh? Jerusalem. What does it mean, strong scepter? Let me give you a reference to put in there. Genesis 49, verses 10 through 12. And why is that? Genesis 49, 10 through 12. Because that is when the prediction is made by Jacob on his 12 sons. And he chooses Judah. And he says, the scepter will not pass from you. You will be a royal and kingly line. You are the one from whom the Messiah will come from. It's prophetic from the beginning. Notice after that, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power. In holy array from the womb of the dawn, your youth are to you as the dew. Yahweh has sworn... He will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. In other words, he chose to give Jesus this role and he has set history in motion so that it culminates in him being the king in Jerusalem over all of the world and nothing is going to thwart that at all. That is his plan. In fact, we would go as far as to say that with this prophecy, he has predestined that plan to take place. Jesus will rule. But notice how he classifies him. Ruling speaks of kingship. Look what he says after that. You are what forever? A priest forever. You're not just a priest. You're also a king. Moving on here. According to the order of Melchizedek. Why? Because he was the king priest of Jerusalem. Adonai is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations, the Gentiles. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Sounds triumphant, doesn't it? Almost makes you want to put your chest out. Kind of like that. Anybody? No? Man. I'm excited that I'm on the winning side. And it had nothing to do with me. And, I, and here's the interesting thing. And this is kind of lazy, but let's be honest. I don't have anything I have to do to get this done. Everybody see that? Jesus is going to come in and do it all. And so my rest is just in him. What's the Bible say you're going to do? Whoa, that's cool. Go do that, right? That's a good thing. Now, here's a question. What does it look like for Christians in this kingdom time? Let's turn all the way back to Revelation 19. Revelation 19. I'll draw your attention to this section. <clears throat> when the church is raptured, there will be seven years. That's according to Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. There will be seven years of tribulation. The first three and a half years is going to be a false peace over the earth. However, there's going to come a point at the three and a half year mark where the man of sin is going to walk into the rebuilt temple and he will pull back that curtain and he will stand in the place where the Shekinah glory of God rested over the top of the Ark of the Covenant. Everybody seen Raiders of the Lost Ark? Okay, he's making, yeah, that's how we know our Bible stuff, right? 
He's going to stand there and he's going to declare himself God. And he's going to say, worship me or die is pretty much the mandate that he's going to give. And you find that in Matthew 24, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Compare them together, you'll see how it works. When that happens, there will be great tribulation for three and a half years, for 1260 days, according to a Jewish calendar, which only runs 360 years, or sorry, 360 days per year. When that happens and the church is raptured, caught up off the earth, we're not destined for wrath. We've been destined for salvation. And Jesus makes sure that happens, and we are to encourage one another with this idea. But then we will give an account for how we lived our lives while we were Christians. While you were a believer in Christ, what did you do with your life? And here's what's interesting, because here's the grand culmination of it. Chapter 19, verse 6. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, many people, and like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad, and give the glory to Him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. Now watch this. And His bride has what? Made herself ready. In other words, it was the bride's responsibility to get prepared. She had to dress herself. Nobody else did it for her. Anybody want to guess who the bride is here? It's the church. We are responsible for getting ourselves ready to meet Jesus. How do we do that? Evangelism, discipleship. There's nothing else given to us to do in the church age. Do you guys understand? Share the gospel, encourage people in the gospel. That's it. And if we're doing anything else, we are completely off base with the entire New Testament. Those are the marching orders of the church. Now watch this. He made her, she made herself ready. He, his bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen. How many of you ladies not like new clothes? Yeah? Nobody? Come on, it's not vain. I'm asking a serious question. I asked Jim, because they said, you know, they, they get that fabric made, the whole thing. I said, where are your pants at? I want to see your pants that look like that shirt. He's like, I didn't do that. You could tell it was a serious issue with him, obviously, at the time. Nice clothes. I'm going to reclothe these people. It's granted to her to wear fine linen. Look what it says. Bright and clean. For, here's your explanation. For is a causal conjunction. It's going to give you the reason why that statement was made. The fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. If we were to translate this more properly, it's the righteousnesses of the saints. It's a plural form of the word righteous or righteousness. The idea here is that the reason why you're able to wear these bright, clean, nice, fine clothes is because you earned the right to do it. Why? Because you chose to operate righteously on the earth, and therefore it's a special privilege for you. Now here's the bombshell. This will mess you up, but try to listen to the rest of my sermon, please. Not everybody gets to wear this linen. Does that mean they're not saved? No, I'm telling you there are some Christians that are squandering their lives right now, doing jack diddly with everything that God gave them. And that will come out when we stand before him to give an account. Not everybody gets to wear these clothes. Now we move forward to the fun part. Verse 11. Here is where the tribulation closes and the kingdom starts. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness, notice it's a standard, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. Who is this? This is Jesus. And remember, guys, he doesn't rip through the clouds. He rips through the sky. The sky rolls up like a scroll, and he returns. Man, it's going to be cool. It's going to be amazing. Verse 14, and the armies which are in heaven, that's usins, okay, clothed in fine linen. Everybody see that? 
wide and clean that connect with you from what we just saw before. Notice that. Are following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, the Gentiles, the pagans, everyone who took the mark of the beast and came under the guise of the man of sin in order to lead a rebellion. That's the idea. When all the nations got together and said, we just need one currency. We just need one government. We all need to be united. We all need to hold hands and smile at one another. And what they found out is they got deceived. So now Jesus comes back to wage war, to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. There's your Psalm 2 reference. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw, and this is this, what takes place here in 17 through 19 is what's known as the battle, the, excuse me, the battle of Megiddo, okay? Another name for Megiddo is where we get the word Armageddon from. It's an amazing valley if you ever want to do some research on it. Whenever Napoleon Bonaparte saw it for the first time, he said, this is the greatest natural battlefield I've ever seen on the face of the earth. God set it up for a reason. The blood will be miles long and up to the horse's bridle is how deep it will be because of all of the carnage that's going to go on in this place. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried out with a loud voice saying to all the birds which fly in mid heaven, come assemble for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, small and great. And I saw the beast, there's your man of sin, man of lawlessness and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Mark this down as the stupidest thing anyone's ever done on the face of the earth. You may be looking at somebody, hear something, you go, good grief, that's stupid. You need somebody to come along and say, not as stupid as trying to attack Jesus when he comes back. That will help you. Okay? That'll humble you and level you out just a little bit. The dumbest thing in the world. Raise your hand if you would take a tank and turn it on Jesus as he comes through the sky. And for some reason, you're not thinking, where'd the sky go? Deceit. See, this will set in for a little while. You'll be thinking, gosh, that is stupid. All right. And the beast, the man of lawlessness, was seized. And with him, the false prophet who performed signs in his presence by which he deceived those who have received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image, and the two were thrown alive unto the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. There's a teaching out there that says that what God's going to do actually is he's going to annihilate these people. They'll just cease to be. Let me tell you the truth. That is not so. And this verse right here proves that. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire. In fact, in a few minutes, whenever we see that Satan is going to be thrown into the lake of fire, you find out that the man of lawlessness and the false prophet are still there and a thousand years have passed. Okay? So this whole idea that people just cease to be, it's not true. God cannot maintain justice if he allows this to go and sweep it under the rug. It says here, verse 21, And the rest were killed by the sword, the one that came out of his mouth, which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Chapter 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss, the bottomless pit, and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for one thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations. And it's real important that you recognize that because it's brought up twice here. This is the first time. Satan's business is to deceive the nations. That's what he's doing now. That's what he will always do. And that's what he will do when he's released Again, it's important for us to see that. Notice this. He deceived the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Now here's where the kingdom begins. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. 
Now, who is that? That is the church. Those who were faithful in this age have ruling and reigning responsibilities alongside Jesus in the age to come. Peter says, Lord, we've left all things. What is there for us? What's the reward that we get? He said, you are going to sit on 12 thrones and you are going to judge the 12 tribes. There is reward for faithful service. And you will serve in the cabinet administration of Jesus Christ when he sets up his kingdom. What's that? For that specific prophecy, it was just for those 12. But notice here, it's speaking of the church. In fact, there are two different instances of people here. The first group is speaking of those who were raptured, have been rewarded, or experienced loss of reward, depending on what they've done in the body, whether it's good or bad. And that reward not just manifests itself in linen or crowns or something like that, but is also the responsibility to reign alongside him. And there are some believers, because they squandered their life on earth, that don't receive that. Still in heaven, still part of the kingdom, but they don't get to serve the king in a greater capacity that would be more pleasing to him. They could have, get this, this is what's important. They could have served him in a greater capacity in the kingdom. But because they wasted their life, they don't get to. It is a privilege that is revoked. Interesting. Notice in verse 4, Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them, And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony about Jesus and because of the word of God. The testimony about Jesus and the word of God is mentioned all throughout Revelation. These are people who died during the tribulation because they held fast to those things. And and again, if we had more time, we would spend more time on this. And one day we will, I promise. It says here, And those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead or their hand, And they came to life, and they reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Notice, they came to life. Beforehand, at the very beginning of the verse, you had people that were already living. And that is the church that comes back with Jesus. Verse 5, the rest of the dead, those people who don't have life, those who are lost, we would say, did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This, speaking of what's happening in front of them, is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Sound good? Do you want to be there? See, that's the big thing. We got to ask ourselves a question. And we can stop it right now and apply it right now. Now, I can't do that because I wouldn't be able to complete the dispensation for you. Are you living with the end in mind? Are you going to be sitting close to him? Is he going to entrust you with Columbia County? Some of you are hoping for Dora County, aren't you? Like, like, Lord, can I trade this in? Ain't a monopoly deal. What are you doing? Right? Some of you are going to reign over Madison. Stop for a second. Don't, 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 who did that? Yeah, Roxanne, don't even stop. She's looking around like it wasn't her. You're forgetting an essential element, the kingdom. Jesus Christ has come to rule. Opposition has been destroyed. Madison stands for the purpose of Christ's righteousness now and nothing else. The whole world. Egypt, Christ's righteousness. Russia, Christ's righteousness. The United States of America, Christ's righteousness. All of it. No one will escape his rule. It can't happen. It's impossible. Don't freak out. We are going a little long today. Verse 7. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, which is the idea of Gentile rulers and the nations with which they rule over, to gather them together for war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. Remember everybody I told you that was ushered physically alive into this kingdom time? For a thousand years, they're going to have a lot of kids. And all they've ever known is the righteous rule of Christ. And so when somebody comes along and offers them the poison lollipop, they're not going to know how to handle it. Here's what's interesting. The situation hasn't changed. Will I trust God's word or will I do what I want to do? Everybody see that? 
Stop reading books about God's will for your life. That's it. Okay? Decision-making in the will of God. Stop. What did God say? Do that. That's the key. That's the great solver there. All mysteries removed from us, and it's some nebulous, weird thing where we got to get high from breathing too much oxygen. Let's stop being weird about our faith. It's going to be the same problem of temptation at that time. And the question is going to be, will you trust me even though you're being tempted in this way? What you're going to find is a lot of these people do not. What is the requirement during the kingdom? To trust God. That's it. To live righteously. Why? It's a righteous kingdom. The enticement, the temptations of sin from an outside source are gone. The only thing that people on the earth have to deal with is the sin that resides in them. Bring it to submission before the Lord. Well, how can they do that? It's not that easy. If Jesus Christ is ruling, it's going to be different. Do you agree? Okay, so we got to deal with that factor. We don't know fully what it's like, but it's going to be different. That's the requirement. What is the failure? This is the failure. Watch it. Verse 9, and they came up on the broad plain from the earth and they surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. What's the beloved city? There it is. And fire came down from the heaven and devoured them. It ate them up. It consumed them. Done. There's the judgment. Because they wanted to take up arms against the reigning king who will never not rule. And they are judged. There's the failure. There's the judgment. It happened in one verse. Verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet, remember those guys, are also, notice the tense, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Here's the judgment. Then I saw the great white throne, him who sat upon it, in whose presence earth and heaven fled away, There was no place found for them, and I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. Books were opened, and another book, singular, was opened, of which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up their dead which were in them, and death and Hades gave up their dead that were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Why do they have to be judged according to their deeds? Because they don't have life. Because they never believed in Jesus. That's all they got left to stand on. I don't know about you, but if I look at my deeds, righteousness is not the conclusion I come from in my equation. But that's what's demanded, perfect righteousness to be with a perfect God. says here, verse 14, Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. There's your judgment of all people. What is the grace? Well, the grace is chapters 21 and 22. It's known as the new heavens and the new earth. It is a time of which Jesus will make all things new. It is a time of which he will establish the new Jerusalem on earth. We always talk about, well, when the kingdom comes, he will wipe every tear from their eye. No, that's not when this happens. It does not happen until sin is vanquished and removed. Now, I understand we're running long. We got a weird schedule going on and all that. I can't make you feel the gravity of this idea. But let me say this. If you're not living with the kingdom in mind, what are you living for? Well, I'm living for Jesus. You cannot live for Jesus. And that be a desire apart from his right to rule and reign. Do you see how that is? You can't just take Savior Jesus. And you can't just take priest Jesus. You have to take him as Savior, priest, King, Son of God, the rightful heir, the anointed one. That is the end. We won't need a son anymore at that point. Why is that? Because the Father and the Son will radiate enough glory for us to see everything. It is a glorious time to look forward to. And if you're not living for that now, what are you living for? Here's the question. When it all boils down to it, does the kingdom solve the human problem of sin it does not because it still has to be judged it's not that the kingdom was bad it's not that jesus ruled poorly it's that sin is so devastating and it's so lodged within the fiber of our being that it wants to rear its head even in the presence of christ himself 
reigning perfectly on the earth. Take your sin seriously. That's why we do 1 John 1, 9. Get it out of the way. Come to terms with it. Remove it. Why? So that you can serve the king more faithfully. But if you're harboring junk, if you're holding on to unforgiveness, unforgiveness is the biggest thing that plagues people in the church nowadays. If this is all junk that you are storing and clinging to as if it mattered, let me tell you, it does not. If you've been hurt, if you've been abused in some way, if you've been wronged, then yes, that is a serious issue that needs to be taken seriously. But our unforgiveness in these situations has never helped anyone get over it and deal with it and experience healing. It doesn't happen that way. That unforgiveness that plagues the church and may plague you personally just eats away and eats away and eats away. Bring it to Christ, the healer of all things. Bring it to his feet and say, Lord, I'm tired of carrying this. Here it is. You can tell from some of your faces I've either offended you or I'm just going too long. Let's pray. Father, help us to see their sins that we've committed or sins that have been committed against us as serious. Father, we've all been hurt in some way. But this should be all the more reason why we look forward to your reign when you will make all things right. Lord, your grace is sufficient. But do we believe that this morning? Your ability is unhindered. But do we believe that? Your kingdom is coming. Your kingdom is coming. But do we really believe that? Do we really live in the now with eternity in mind, with forever before us? Maybe we need to do a serious inventory and seek to forgive as you've forgiven us. To seek to love one another as you've commanded us to do. To desire opportunities to share our faith. To sit down with the word of God and encourage one another. I pray that every person in this room would hear, well done, good and faithful servant. That we not be deluded by what we think are good works, but we would see your word clearly as being good works. Jesus, you've given us everything that we need. Everything, everything. Help us in our doubt when life gets serious, when we are struck with suddenly bad news, when tensions run high, when we are apathetic, when someone tries to encourage us in the word and make us see something for eternal values and and we roll our eyes at that idea, sigh deeply over it. God, we can become so easily calloused to the grand hope of eternity. Father, if that's us today, I pray that we confess it before you. Help us in our apathy. Help us in our slothfulness. And help us to make whatever adjustments are necessary to live free as we truly are free because Jesus Christ has freed us so that we will rule and reign with you in the coming kingdom. We pray it in his name. Amen.